Welcome to the Rare Sense Podcast. This is Chris Irwin. Today I'm speaking with Rob Wolf. Rob is somebody who I consider to be a food expert. And those are my words, not his. But he's written two New York Times, Wall Street Journal best selling books, The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. And he's most recently co written Sacred Cow with Diana Rogers, which talks about why well raised meat is good for humans and for the planet. And you may have heard him talking about that on Joe Rogan, uh, among other things. If you're familiar with the Rare Sense Mind Fitness paradigm, then you'll know it's comprised of three blocks, maintenance, orientation, and development. And maintenance is basically what we think of as physical fitness. It's sort of the foundation that everything else rests on. If you're going to have a healthy mind, you need to have a healthy body. So that's diet, exercise, and recovery. And then breathwork is the other component that I throw in there that I think is crucial to having a healthy body. So I wanted to have Rob on to talk about diet because he's somebody that I trust and he's a friend and he's got an in-depth knowledge of the subject. Unfortunately, I only had him for an hour and there were other things that I wanted to get to, but hopefully I can get him back on at some point. And then we also had some technical difficulties with his video uploading specifically to the platform. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you're just going to see a Rare Sense logo. Uh, there's no video associated with this. It's audio only. But if you're listening to it on a streaming platform, you won't know the difference. Anyway, it was a great conversation. Really interesting. I love hearing Rob's take on these things, things that I think are basically common sense, for lack of a better term, uh, where he is able to lend some color to the way I feel about these things and set me straight in certain circumstances. But I hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, here's Rob Wolf. All right, Rob, how's it going, man? Good, good. Another day yeah. above ground, so I'm calling it a win. It's yeah, probably, uh, probably a loss for my wife. I think I'm worth more dead than alive, but you know, that, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll keep stealing, stealing that joy away from her as long as I can. Right, right. Well, it's good to see you. I, you know, we, you. we have lived now in the same state within, uh, I don't 20 know, minute you, drive, like 30, 25 minutes minute away drive. Me? Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're that close. And we never see one another. Actually, now my wife sees more of you because you go to the ice den. The ice skating, yeah. Skating. Well, I do have to say, um, you guys had us over for dinner and you guys put on such right. an epic spread that I looked at my wife and I'm like, there's no fucking way we could match that. Like, you, I, I, we have to take keep, them out for dinner. We can't. <laughs> we won't be able to beat it. So you, you guys put on an, like, a hell the, of a spread. You're the food guy, though. Like you're supposed know, to be the one that's got the. Right? I know, and I, mean, I, I, I fully acknowledge. I, I'm not remotely the smartest guy in the room, but I'm smart enough to know when I've met my better, and I, I've met my better in the Irwins when it comes to putting on a, an epic meal. So yeah, this is not, there's no plural in that. That is my wife, that the is not Irwin. Me. Okay, okay. Yeah, okay. I know how to cut cheese and like salami and stuff like that. So. Well, you did a hell of a job uh, on it. So. Well, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I can pour wine. Okay. Um, all right. Well, uh, look, of all the guests that I've had on this podcast, and it hasn't been many yet, but you're, I would say you're by far one that people are going to know, or at least some people will know. I think a lot of people will know. 
But regardless, just give a quick kind of overview of what you do, what you've done, who you are. Sure, sure. Uh, Ages ago, I was a cancer and autoimmunity researcher. I was looking at maybe an MD or an MD PhD track kind of in that space. And uh, I've always been interested in health and human performance. Um, At that time, I was tinkering with a a vegan diet. And for me, it it really didn't work super well. I ended up with ulcerative colitis. Bad enough that I, I was facing like a, a bowel resection and kind of immunosuppressant drugs. I'm a 5'9", 175 pounds, uh, not a big dude, but uh, at the low ebb of my ulcerative colitis, I was about 125, 130 pounds. So if folks are watching this, like you could, if you could imagine 20, you know, 50 pounds less of me, I was in pretty, pretty dire straits. And this was around 1997, 1998 that, that things got really, really bad. And it's also when this idea of a paleo diet got on my radar. And it's kind of a long story how that came about. But um, I was so sick and so desperate that when this this idea of a paleo diet got on my radar and I started doing some research around that, what was interesting is that most of what was written at that time talked a lot about gut and autoimmune issues. And uh, again, I was so sick that it, it was kind of like, well, I've literally got nothing to lose. And I, I tried eating that way, uh, kind of a low carb, what we would call ketogenic or, or paleo type diet, uh, definitely an eye towards immunogenic foods like gluten. I, I have celiac disease, so I have to be particularly careful with that, but it definitely saved my life. And it was such a profound experience that I, I just couldn't wrap my head around going to regular medical school and, and spending another, you know, four to eight years just learning about pathophysiology before I even really got into to work with people. And I really wasn't sure what I was going to do at that point. But it was about a year, year and a half later that I, I was poking around on the interwebs and I found this weird workout called CrossFit. And they had these like super high rep, you know, uh, Olympic lifts mixed with sprinting and gymnastic stuff. And I liked sprinting, Olympic lifting, and gymnastics. It had just never occurred to me to mix it together the way that they they did. And I was uh, hanging out with a good friend of mine, a retired Navy SEAL named Dave Warner. And we started working out in his garage. We basically converted his garage into a, a gym. And within like four months, we had about 15 people training with us. Like we just told people at work and different things like, hey, come work out with us and everything. And we we're like... Hey, do you think we could open like a gym and really do this? And I was like, yeah, I think we could. I mean, we haven't done anything yet. And, you know, we, we had this kernel of, of people there. So we reached out to Greg and Lauren Glassman. And this was 2001-ish and early yeah. 2001. And we were basically like, hey, could we open a gym and call it CrossFit? And they were like, yes, go be achieve. And that ended up being the first CrossFit affiliate gym, CrossFit North. And then I had a chance to move back down to Chico, California, where I did my undergrad and opened what was then the fourth CrossFit affiliate, NorCal Strength and Conditioning, CrossFit NorCal, and uh, worked in and around CrossFit for a number of years, went on to write a couple of uh, New York Times bestselling books, um, had, did some work with Naval Special Warfare with the pre and post deployment, uh, you, you know, kind of retreats for the SEALs, the special boat teams and the families. And you've just been really, really fortunate to be in this this space where um, I, I feel like I do the type of medicine that I was really wired to do. Talk about sleep and yeah. food and exercise and community. I, I 
for a long time have uh, kind of coined this term. The gym is primary care medicine. Like that's where you, that's where we should get the bulk of our needs and like the doc in the box and, and all that stuff. I see that as secondary and tertiary uh, medical care. That's when things have kind of gone off the rails or you need emergency yep. medicine or what have you. But that's kind of a, a 24, almost 25 years and not too much longer than like five minutes, but that's like the the big overview on it. Yeah. So much of what I do is kind of, it's about mental health, right? Or what I call mind fitness. That's kind of my <clears throat> thing that I'm trying to bring into the forefront of discussion and sort of look at that, the way we look at physical fitness and physical health, all, all the things you kind of talked about. Um, but a big piece of that is, is like what we eat and how we exercise, right? Like that is, is a huge impact on our I mean, I look at it as the actual impetus is mental, right? The reason you go to the gym is because you are right. at least in that moment mentally fit and have the discipline to get to the gym, right? But that will in turn make you feel better. That'll make you want to go again. And the same thing with food. And so I think where your expertise plays into what, I, what I'm doing and what kind of this podcast and what Rare Sense is about is like wh how we do that, right? Like how do we figure out what the best sort of physical fitness protocol is, the physical, the diet protocol, all of that. And you're somebody who was like, seems to be anyway, in my estimation, extremely prescient in your ability to kind of get ahead of these things. And I know you have a lot of opponents as well. People like, I know you've gone head to head with people uh, for whatever reason. And I'd be curious about that too. But I guess where I want to start a little bit is, you know, I'm a big proponent of people figuring it out for themselves. And you have to. You have to figure out what your bespoke formula is of all these things. Mm -hmm. And there isn't any – it's not a cookie cutter situation or a peanut butter spread situation where it's like, here's the one – here's the way everybody should eat. Here's the exact right, right diet, right? We've, we've encapsulated it into a pill – and it's the same for everybody. Right. And the same thing is true with your physical fitness and your mental fitness and all of that. So I guess you're somebody who's very much done that um, and then tried to, I think, give those lessons to other people. How do we do that these days? Because I think I, while I believe in that, the problem is there's a lot of bad information out there. Right. And, and when we say do your own research – there's a lot of shit research out there, right? Like you can right. find, you, you can, can spend find a lifetime. Any, yeah. Right. And you can, you can justify any position with internet research. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Which amounts to garbage. So how do you, how do you do that? And specifically, obviously with what we're talking about, like um, the sort of dietary component of this and the physical fitness component of it, where, where do you start? Like, how do you do that? Yeah. You know, for me, this, uh, this evolutionary biology idea, you know, that organisms kind of optimize for the environment that they're in. And there's, there's some pushback around that stuff, but I, I, this is kind of Darwinian evolution type, type things. Uh, I find a lot of grounding in that. Like that seems like a good first principles place to start. I think that where kind of like the paleo diet ancestral health movement kind of went off the rails maybe like seven or eight years ago, 10 years ago, is that it didn't acknowledge the kind of nuance and variation within that. Like that is still, I think, a great place to start. Like if we're, pl if we're playing darts, 
that ancestral health model, sleep, food, exercise, gut microbiome, stress, circadian biology, God damn, that's getting you really tight grouping really close to the middle. But it's not 100% perfect for every person. But, it, you know, if you've got to start somewhere, I think like minimally processed food, about a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass, um, a, a good omega-3, omega-6 ratio, going to bed it, earlier as opposed to later most of the time, you know, um, keeping an eye on your, your, your gut health. Uh, the gut health thing is fascinating in that. Some people seem to do great with fiber. Some people, you know, like carnivore diet seem to do wonderfully with little or no fiber. And I happen to be in that camp. The, the end state is that I, I have to act in a way that my gut is happy and healthy. How mm-hmm. I do that will vary from for me versus, versus you potentially. But it's still, we have some really nice um, lane lines that we can operate in using that ancestral health model. And, and then we can start iterating. Some people do better on higher carbs. Some people do better on lower carbs. Some people do better with like kind of a cyclical pr- approach. Um, some people really need some uh, low in, lower intensity zone two cardio and a lot of it. And I happen to be one of those people. I tend to be very sympathetic dominant, like kind of twitchy and, and easily wound up and everything. And man, that that zone two cardio is is just the best medicine in the world for me. You know, it's like 130, 140 beat per minute, an hour of that, you know, three or four times a week is it, it is improved my gut health. It is for the first time in my life. I went a year without suffering, crushing seasonal affective disorder. I mean, it, mm. it was just, you know, we live in Northern Montana. So like the light was, yeah. was not favorable. The only time that I've, I've not experienced that is the, the two years I lived in, a sunny area of Texas. And then, um, if I'm in like Mexico or something like that, you know, but and, so those are nuances there. Like some people will do better in a sunnier environment and, and whatnot, but these, these pillars of sleep, food, circadian biology, gut health, uh, basic nutrition, there's, there's a lot of uniformity there, at least in the beginning. And then we can start asking some AB questions, you know, like, okay, you're not optimized we assume this, let's up your protein. And if we're right about that, then X, Y, Z should happen. And then you do it and it doesn't happen. Then we're like, oh, okay, we had a wrong assumption there. But then we can start iterating and getting people closer to a reality. And I I just haven't seen any other operating system function that way, you know, relative to this evolutionary biology kind of ancestral health template. So that's really for for me, the orienting uh, piece to that. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Can you define that? So evolutionary biology, like, so, I mean, just kind of trying to (laughs) dumb it down for people like me, what does that mean exactly? Like, yeah, yeah. So, so like, uh, when we go to national parks, what, what, what's, what does the ranger say? Don't feed the animals. Why don't we feed Mm -hmm. the animals? Because we introduce types of calories and quantities of calories that are not appropriate for these critters. And it makes them sick. Like it, it legitimately mm-hmm. makes them sick. One of the the greatest challenges within modern zoos is that the food that they feed these animals tends to make the animals sick. The animals develop all kinds of diabetes and uh, neurodegenerative diseases, autoimmune diseases that are unheard of out in the wild. Now, animals living in the wild have their own challenge, you know, eating or being eaten and usually kind of short lifespans. But 
this evolutionary biology perspective is really just kind of acknowledging that an organism is has kind of optimized for a particular environment. You know, some animals or critters are nocturnal, so they function best, you know, active at night, sleeping during the day. We're diurnal, so we we tend to function best awake during the day, uh, asleep at night. And it's not surprising that like folks who do shift work, the uh, Centers for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, acknowledge shift work as a known carcinogen now. Like it's up there with with yeah. tobacco smoking and radiation exposure and whatnot. And it shouldn't be super surprising because there's no other organism that can modify its environment the way that we can and have 24-7 light exposure and whatnot. And interestingly, our pets suffer a lot of problems because of our, our food access, because of the light and photo exposure. Uh, so the, this evolutionary biology idea is just this, this idea. And it, it, and it does, some people who have like a strong religious or spiritual background, like they really push back against it. For me, I don't really see the two competing with each other, but that's a whole, whole other, you know, kettle of fish to, uh, to unpack. But it, it's just this acknowledgement or maybe a thought that most all organisms have kind of an optimized environment that they they can exist in. And when you start deviating away from that ex- environment, there's something called the uh, the discordance hypothesis. The further away from that, that kind of like idealized environment that something is optimized for, the more potential there is for disease or or difficulties to arise until yep. you get enough generations to to ensue to um uh, to get an adaptation to deal with that. A, a good example of this is uh, people who from different areas of Africa that developed uh, sickle cell anemia. Um, these areas are endemic with uh, uh, mosquitoes and a parasite that's in the mosquitoes that, that causes um, uh, malaria. And although the malaria is, is incredibly damaging, the, the uh, sickle cell anemia gene adaptation if you have two genes for for sickle cell anemia you usually die pretty pretty young ironically like it it actually comes at a pretty high cost but if you only have one gene for sickle cell anemia it provides a a, a an adaptive benefit so that the malaria parasite cannot set up shop in your red blood cells the same way that that somebody without this this uh, genetic adaptation can do and sickle cell anemia is the quickest spreading um, a gene modification that we've ever seen in human history. But it also comes at a really high cost. And again, like if you if you have two parents that each have a sickle cell anemia gene and you you inherit both of those, your likelihood of living past 20 years old is very, very low. Whoa. It, yeah, it's, it, it's incredibly uh, and what, powerful. And what is it? What 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 is sickle cell anemia? Like it what causes what is your, your red blood cells to change shape. And they change shape okay. in such a way that they they don't move through the the uh, vasculature correctly, and they actually damage the vasculature. And they they can, can give kids interestingly uh, atherosclerotic placking that looks like they they are a pack a day smoker diabetic for eighty Whoa. years, and then they they die typically from a a cardiac event. Interestingly, so but. Now that it, you have populations of people, usually African-American, that, that have moved to an environment in which malaria is not present, 
that sickle cell anemia trait is disappearing from the population really, really quickly because there's not the selection pressure of the the relative benefit of having sickle cell anemia is kind of gone if you live in the United States versus some areas of of Africa or or Central America where there there is malaria. So that's an example yeah. of of like a or or a, a lactase persistence where usually yep. humans yep. lose the ability to digest lactose as they as they age. Um, there are four or five different populations: Northern Europe, Africa, Asia that um, develop different types of lactase persistence where they continue to produce yeah. lactose as, as they, or, or the lactase, the, the, uh, the enzyme to break down lactose as they age. And then there are other populations. This is one of the things that was kind of missed within the, the broader ancestral health scene is that technology can bypass some of this stuff. So there are populations that consume a lot of dairy, but they only consume it after it's been fermented. And so it removes the large bulk of the lactose and then the dairy ends up not being a problem and it's a really, you know, valuable food for them. So those populations that developed a technology to deal with this problem never developed a, a lactase persistence gene to deal with it. And I think that that is something that needs to be acknowledged within this ancestral health space is that technology, uh, you know, whether it's cooking or different types of food processing can change the way that people interact with their food and their environment for sure. Yeah. Um, so let's go back to the, um, actually there's a couple things in there. One is that you mentioned the kind of the sunlight thing and pets. And I had somebody point out to me, uh, not specifically, but I think I overheard this on another podcast, but they were talking about how, if you watch your pets, they will always find the sunlight. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like by nature, they will do that. If there is sunlight coming through a window or if a door is open, certainly, and, and they're not doing that because Andrew Huberman said, go out and get right. sunlight exposure. It's like they naturally know that it's a good idea to get sunlight. It's like recharging their batteries, right? right. And I think that that sort of like takes some cues. I don't have pets, but these, these other animals that do these things instinctually – it's like sometimes taking a cue from them is a good is a good idea, right? Like they, without a doubt, they just yeah. know that that's a good idea, and and they um, will self regulate too. You know, they you know they get too hot or they they feel like they've had too yep. much, and then they'll they'll go rack out in the shade. Yeah, yeah, yep. So let's talk about. I mean, going back to just kind of the diet thing. I so much media and you know pop not pop culture, but sort of social media, the conversations out there, there's so much polarity of, especially now, like plants and meat. And it's like, you got people that are just like, we should only eat plants, right? Like meat is toxic, meat is carcinogenic. And then you got other people that are like, you should only eat meat because I've even heard plants are toxic, like right. oxalates are toxic. And I think both you and I are people who say, hey, like both somewhere in the middle of that can work. And you, again, have to figure it out for yourself. But can you talk a little bit about, because I know you're a proponent of meat and you wrote mm -hmm. Sacred Cow and, and, and the sort of health benefits there. Can you talk about if you go to the extremes either way, right? Like if you go completely vegan or completely carnivore, are there risks there? Are there things you don't get because like this, it's this kind of information that I think is important to have so that people can make their own educated decisions. And again, work with their own diet to optimize it for themselves and not say, hey, that person's eating meat. I'm going to just eat meat. And then 
it, it didn't work for me like it did for them. Why didn't it work? It's like, well, because you're a different, you have a, not the exact same biology as everybody right. else out there, right? right? So, but can you just talk about that? Like if, if I decided to just eat meat, like nothing else or something close to that, are there things that I don't get that from vegetables or fruit that where that's important, right? Like I'm missing out on something and then vice versa, right? If I just go the vegan route, are there things that I don't get? Yeah, it, it's interesting. And my position on this has changed a lot over the last, say, like eight years watching the carnivore scene. And um, it, 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 it's funny because in my early paleo diet incarnation, I, I really held up as kind of a badge of honor, the amount of plants I ate, you know, it was like, I'd go to the farmer's market and it was kale and broccoli and spinach. And I had these huge salads and stir fries and everything. And my gut health was better than what it was when I had ulcerative colitis, but I still always had these kind of niggling problems. And, and mine has never been constipation. Mine's kind of like food just kind of whooshes through. Me. And so, yeah. you know, I started, what was interesting is that when I first got into this paleo diet area, I'm actually the person that coined the term the autoimmune paleo diet because we we kind of delineated some some processes that we thought would be beneficial for autoimmune conditions. And then some people like Dr. Terry Walls, who was wheelchair bound from multiple sclerosis, yes. ended up reversing yep. her multiple sclerosis with this kind of autoimmune paleo type diet, which her version of it is very plant heavy, actually. Like it has plenty of meat and seafood and whatnot, but it, it's got a lot of, a lot of vegetable matter in it too. But we have some great uh, uh, research from her quarter and from other places that suggest that this is a really efficacious approach for say like autoimmune disease. But there are a lot of people for whom the autoimmune paleo diet does not work. And then I saw people eating this just carnivore diet. And within carnivore, my God, there's a million different iterations of that. I call some of it one cut carnivore where people find that like ribeye from grass fed meat is like the thing they can do. And they can't do ground beef because the ground beef ends up creating a histamine because the, the meat gets to ferment a little bit. And so they can't do that stuff. And ah, so okay. even within carnivore, there's all of this spectrum within that, but some interesting stuff emerges. Like there have been studies like, uh, uh, the, uh, Arctic Explorer, uh, oh, Vildemir Johansson. I, I I'm blanking on his last name, but he he made some claims around what the Inuit diet was, which was mainly kind of meat and and blubber, and people couldn't believe it. And so he yeah. did a metabolic ward study for over a year and just ate meat and and fat, and he had water, and I think they they allowed him like salt, and and that was it. And he ate it for a year, and he was fine. His health was spectacular, no nutrient deficiencies. Um, Within a carnivore diet, one could make the case that maybe vitamin C might be lacking. But interestingly, fresh meat does have vitamin C in it. It, it gets stored in the in the the you know the meat itself. And another interesting thing is that we see when carbohydrate intake decreases, our need for B vitamins decreases. Our need for vitamin C potentially decreases. So the physiological needs of somebody eating a low carb or carnivore diet may be remarkably different than those of somebody eating more of a mixed diet. Like you literally may need more, more vitamins and cofactors to be able to process carbohydrate. But it is worth noting that on a carnivore diet, we have examples of people going extremely long periods of time with no 
plant material. Uh, there's a, a woman who, uh, due to rheumatoid arthritis uh, that she developed in her late 30s, early 40s, has been on a carnivore diet for 26 years. And she looks amazing. I mean, she she looks spectacular, no nutrient deficiencies like you do blood tests and uh, she's doing great. I don't think that's going to work out that way for everybody. I think that you have a situation there where she had an illness that benefited from a carnivore diet and her specific genetic makeup probably was quite amenable to doing that. Um, I think that you might have people for whom that, you, you know, they're not going to get the same kind of kind of benefits and results. But there is a reality that there is no singular plant food that one could eat and not develop really over nutrient deficiencies. Yeah. B12 deficiencies, other B12 doesn't really exist other than in animal foods, uh, B, B vitamin deficiencies. It's very, very difficult to get things like zinc and iron out of plant foods. Even if it's in the plant, the plants tend to, to have, um, chemicals in them that really bind quite tightly to, to uh, uh, metal ions and whatnot. There was a fascinating study that looked at people eating seafood uh, from uh, uh, either seafood alone with, with um, plain white rice or seafood with uh, uh, this um, traditionally milled corn tortillas and corn is particularly high in this, this substance called phytic acid. And what was fascinating is that the seafood is really, really rich in zinc. Like you sh one should get a really nice bump in the amount of zinc that, that they absorb into their body. But these people effectively absorb no zinc from that seafood meal due to the phytates in the corn tortillas. Mm, and so it basically bound all of that stuff. And what we see in like developing countries, what, what's kind of interesting there is that the, the people in developing countries usually have lesser access to meat and dairy and seafoods, and they have some super predictable uh, nutrient deficiencies. Children tend to be shorter in stature, lower in IQ, um, lots of immune uh, compromised situations because of some predictable problems with zinc, iron, B vitamin deficiencies. And then as a population westernizes, they, there's good and bad to it. Usually they get more meat, seafood, dairy, those sorts of things that are more nutrient dense. They also tend to ultimately end up getting more um, uh, processed foods, which is not doing anybody any favors. But I, I clearly have a bias on this, but I really think that is well supported within the literature that um, if one is going to do a vegan diet, you're going to have to supplement. Like there's just no, there are no two ways about that. The, the carnivore approach, you might need to, but I've at least seen a decent number of folks that, that go a really long period of time. We also have cultures that, you know, like the Inuit again, that, that have tens of thousands of years of, of not exclusively a meat-based diet, but a, a very, very meat-centric, uh, fat-centric diet. And these, these folks seem to do really well. Um, I do think that this is a, a great place for people to tinker and explore. Like if, yeah. if somebody had gut or autoimmune issues, I would strongly recommend something autoimmune, paleo, carnivore-esque looking because the most critical thing that that person could do is get that autoimmune condition into remission, get that thing into remission and then start playing with what, what things on the periphery can I add in over the last two years, I figured out that I cannot do, um, 
a standard bovine dairy, just cow dairy. Um, unless it's like cream or butter, I can, I can tolerate that. And I can't do tomatoes. It, it, like I have rheumatoid arthritis. I don't know if you can see in my, my knuckles, no. but like I, I, I um, I, uh, I assumed that my hand and wrist pain was due to jujitsu because I've been doing jujitsu for a, yeah. a number of years, yeah, yeah. just kind of, a, oh, it, it, you know, it's just this low grade pain. But my wife made me a, a keto cheesecake two years ago. And right around January and I got, it was great. And I had several pieces of it. And then I woke up one morning, my hand felt like something was eating it from the inside. And I did some blood Mm. work and I was like, oh, I have a really gnarly rheumatoid arthritis flare. I had to go on prednisone and some other stuff. And I I traced it back to an intolerance to dairy and, and, uh, tomatoes. So even within this, like I kind of eat pretty close to carnivore. I eat a little bit of fruit because I just. I feel like I would hang myself with piano wire if the only thing I could, I love meat, <laughs> but if the only thing I could eat was, was yeah, if the only thing I could eat boring. was meat, it'd be it's like, yeah, yeah, it'd be really boring. So I do a little bit of, a little bit of fruit here and there. And I, I feel good with that. I, I like that, but like the, the dairy eggs and then ironically tomatoes, um, crush me. Like they, they really yeah. flare up the autoimmune stuff. So yeah, I think that I've, that's yeah. where people again need to kind of, yeah. Dial that and, stuff and this, in. And it just goes back to, again, like taking, taking ownership of this for yourself in my estimation and not just sort of buying into whatever the fad is or whatever. Some, it's like, okay, taking all the information and then don't be stupid about it, but like take, it's a self experiment of mm-hmm. like, okay, mm-hmm. what to your point, like you, you spent a lot of time figuring out, okay, okay I'm having this reaction this is inflamed what could that be due to and and i always go back go to like let's not go seek a drug to try to reduce the inflammation here let's figure out what i'm already doing right that's probably causing this right so on the on the plant thing and the evolutionary biology thing and this is where i get to and like my personal opinion is this is just you know again chris Irwin's opinion is i i feel like if we were, if all the technology went away and all the grocery stores went away and we were just, we had to go find food again, I think everybody would end up eating meat. Like you just couldn't survive. We No right. farms anymore, no agriculture. Like it's going to, it won't be long before you're hunting something and eating. Right. And I feel like most cultures for hundreds of thousands of years did that. So to me, thinking that that's unhealthy just doesn't make sense. I'm curious, do you know, are there any indigenous cultures that we know of that just ate plants? No, and and, and that's where uh, Weston A. Price, he was a dentist in the early 1900s, traveled the world looking at like the the dental formation of of different folks. And the less plant material generally they ate, the better the dental structure and the less the kind of dental caries and whatnot. He never found a purely vegan culture. There was a clear delineation between the the hunter-gatherers and the pastoralists being taller, stronger, healthier, usually more warlike too. Like they just yeah. like to go stir stir stuff up more versus the, the, <laughs> the more um, yeah. kind of kind of yeah. plant centric. It is worth noting that the the population on the planet that has the lowest recorded incidence of any type of cardiovascular disease is the uh, uh, Simone, which is a hunter-gatherer group in the Amazonian rainforest. And and mm. they they by no means are carnivore. They eat plenty of plant material, but they also, one of their main staples is a type of wild pig, uh, peccary. And, mm. and um, so 
Yeah. They're neither vegan well, I've been, nor carnivore. I've been, and they're incredibly yeah, yeah. healthy. Yeah. 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 Right. And I, and to me, that's just sort of a, it's natural stuff. There's yeah. no processing of any of that. Right. It's stuff that they have evolved to consume what naturally occurs. And right. I think, and, and just the, the same way that a, a, your body can kind of operate off of carbohydrates or it can become ketogenic, like our bodies are, can really adapt to what we, the food sources that we put in, as long as they're natural and they're not right. garbage and they're not made in a factory and they're not full of all preservatives and all this other bullshit that we put in food. Right. Um, yeah. Like, so why there's a lot of people and there's a lot of, th- th- we hear this message a lot that meat is carcinogenic, right? That it's, it's going to, it causes cancer and heart disease and these types of things. And to your point, like I've been to Kenya where the Maasai, I'm pretty sure just kind of eats goat meat and drinks blood and goat milk. And that's yeah. basically their diet. And I don't think they have cancer or heart. I'm like, not in the rates that we have in the United States. Right. So, right. so why, where does that come from? Where, what is the evidence out there that suggests that meat is bad for you? Cause yeah. I hear it a lot. Yeah. You hear it a lot and you'll, you'll see stuff that looks like credible peer reviewed uh, research on this. We actually dug into this a lot in sacred cow, the, the book that I, yep. I wrote with Diana Rogers and Diana actually did more of the the kind of historical research on this. So this is the material that, that she really pulled out. But it, if we go back in history, not, not that long, and really almost anywhere that you want to land, um, food has always been a distinguishing feature of in-group versus out-group. Even within the, the hunter-gatherer groups within the uh, Amazonian rainforest in uh, Africa, the few remaining groups there, like the Hudsa had things that they would and would not eat that were different than the, uh, the San Bushmen. And, and th- this has been a defining feature. If we look at the Abrahamic religions, you know, like uh, uh, Judaism, Christianity, uh, Islam, there are different foods that are on the menu and not on the menu. And it, it really defines the in-group versus the out-group. So there's a, a long yep. history of this. Uh Within the West, the kind of Seventh-day Adventist vegetarian-leaning approach really took on a lot of uh, – uh, got a lot of headway in the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s. There's a great movie that has Matthew Broderick, um, uh, the guy that played Hannibal Lecter, uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins. Like it, it's, yeah. it's a great movie called The Road to Wellville. And it, it, huh. it that oh, was yeah. I've heard of book. this movie. I haven't seen it. Yeah. yeah, it's a great movie, and it talks about the early naturopathic water therapy uh, uh, retreats where people would go do hydrotherapy and they would sit in the sun. They had a lot of stuff really dialed in on this, but this guy uh, Kellogg had this kind of interesting religious orientation around meat and uh, impure thoughts and and uh, sexuality and all this stuff, and he developed cornflakes as a means of feeding people but that it, what he what he determined in his his estimation was that meat led to uh sexual lust and impure thoughts and you could maybe <laughs> make the case that that's true because if you're well fed you actually like 
you know, you feel kind of randy. This is this is one of the things that happens when people start <laughs> working out in a CrossFit gym. Usually they're told to eat something like a paleo or zone type diet. They start doing good exercise. They feel good. And like we used to warn people, like you'll get pregnant being in this gym, you know, it, it mm. just, just fair <laughs> warning, like everybody got more fertile. And he really adopted this, this thing that was kind of the opposite of this because of the, the kind of religious orientation and whatnot. But the, the whole field of registered dietetics was started within the Seventh-day Adventist religion. And so it's always had this very strong anti-meat orientation. And there have been claims, you know, like it, it, uh, meat putrefies in the colon and all this stuff. Meat's actually remarkably easy to to digest in World War II when when soldiers were critically injured. Like there, there are these fascinating posters uh, about why um, people back in the States were on low meat diets because of meat rationing. And it was basically, we you're not having your meat so that he can have his so he can get back in the fight. Like it was understood that people who were sick, injured, wounded, needed this, this meat to be able to recover and mm-hmm. get, get back into uh, doing the stuff that they were doing. But, you know, the, this flip side, the, the, the real orientation towards, um, you know, meat causes cancer and all this stuff really came from this uh, researcher, T. Colin Campbell, uh, who is a, a professor of nutritional biochemistry, I believe at Tufts. And he wrote a book, The China Study, and, and right. it led into a, yeah. you know, a book and film, Forks Over Knives. And they, they basically made a, a claim that um, these rural areas of China that historically had not eaten a lot of meat as they began eating more meat, they developed higher rates of, of cancer and other types of diseases. Now, this is true, but the interesting thing is that these areas also began to smoke more, eat more sugar, eat more calories in general, and just generally adopted a, a westernized type type diet. And when uh, there have been some interesting uh, and digging into the, the raw data from the China study and uh, uh, Really incredibly smart uh, researcher, Denise Minger, really got in and, and looked at this stuff closely. And what she found was that the so if we were to correlate smoking and cancer and we gave it an arbitrary number, it, it'd be like 10,000. Like the correlation is incredibly strong. It's very, very high. The correlation between meat and cancer is like a two relative to 10,000. It, it, it's effectively background noise. What was interesting within the um, the research that T. Colin Campbell did, wheat had a higher correlation with cancer than meat did, but they didn't include that in their, their analysis. Now, I don't know that it actually is anything other than noise as well, but that's really where this material came from. The way that they arrived at this in part was this uh, uh, the, this dietary trend change, which they, they also ignored the longest lived population on the planet currently is Hong Kong. Hong Kong also, their average age is over 85 years of lifespan, westernized, okay. uh, tight, tight cultural uh, bonds and whatnot. They also eat on average two pounds of meat per day. They're the highest per capita meat consumers on the planet. Of so, meat, like red meat or is it red meat. fish? No, it's red like meat? red meat. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I mean, they eat a mixture of this stuff, but like yeah, their yeah, yeah. red meat consumption is remarkably high. It, it, and this is yeah. another one of these things that just doesn't fit with the narrative. But uh, what, what T. Colin Campbell did it, on the 
the like laboratory side, they fed mice uh, a, a, a uh, toxicant called aflatoxin. It's a toxin that, that's found in yep. mold. And then yep, they, I, yeah. I know the mold stuff yeah. really well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so then they, they fed either high or low protein diets to these mice and looked at the, the rates of cancer. And what they found is that the higher protein intakes developed, uh, died from cancer sooner. And so they're like, okay, uh, uh, this is the, you know, protein is bad, animal protein is bad. What they were feeding these mice was effectively whey protein, sugar, and corn oil. Like it was a mm. shockingly refined diet. It wasn't remotely anything like a, an ancestral diet for a mouse. And then what was interesting about this is that the high protein diet, it took longer for these animals to develop cancer. Like they had more resilience against getting cancer. Once you had cancer, the high protein diet accelerated the problem. But the, what they didn't hmm. report in the literature is that the high protein diet protected against getting cancer. So, huh. it, it, you know, so there was there was a lot of um, confounding material in there that, that was really not honestly or transparently uh, communicated in these these situations. Doesn't so much of that basically come down to inflammation? Like, yeah, and that's yeah. just part of part of the part of like the the puzzle you're trying to solve with yourself is like getting rid of anything that causes inflammation in your body. Right? It, to me, it just seems like so so much comes back to basically that. Like, if yeah. you are constantly inflamed, that's going to lead to <laughs> the the probably the the bad outcome. Right? All, all the, the bad outcomes, outcome. cardiovascular disease, cancer, neurodegenerative disease. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's almost trite at this point, but it's like any condition that you really care to, to think about, usually inflammation is kind of at the, at the root cause yeah. of it. I yeah. guess uh, I should say chronic inflammation, right? Because short-term inflammation can be good. Can be very right? The adaptive. way we, when you work out and yep. from that type of stuff causes acute inflammation. That's actually a good stress response or yep. creates a good stress response in the body. Right. Yeah. So there's two things I know we're coming up on time here and you got a hard stop. So you only got about 10 minutes left. There's kind of two other things I want to, and I'm trying to get to all these points that I wanted to. <laughs> yeah, we could, we could bleed over maybe like five or 10 minutes. I, I we could oh, okay. bleed over a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned Hong Kong, uh, and I believe they are on the list of what we would call a blue zone, right? Blue zones, which is Hong Kong is not because they don't because they don't fit the narrative because they're a high meat consuming environment. So they're not okay. So interesting, but but sort of you can uh, correct me here on the definition. But there's this this notion of blue zones, which are a lot of coastal places, a lot of the Mediterranean. And this is a place, these are places where people can live to be, or uh, in a higher proportion, live to be 90, 100, much older age. And so there's a lot of people who speculated that that's because of their diet and that diet is more sort of towards the vegetarian kind of vegan side of things. I think what you would argue, and we've talked about this before, is that's not exactly true. They actually do eat a lot of meat and fish and other animal products. But then the other thing that I always want to bring up about this is we always look for, when we talk about longevity, and this is a hugely hot topic right now, and all these hacks that we can do, we can dunk ourselves in ice water and red light therapy and saunas and you name it, starve ourselves, right? <laughs> fasting, right? Right. Uh, and that's great. Like, 
cool. I mean, like that's a good thing. But so much of it always comes back to food. When we look at like these populations, like this population, they live to be very, very old. And it's always like diet. And we never, or it seems like we don't focus on like the other things they do, like their social interactions and right. And like their sunlight exposure and the, and maybe even the fact that they take a nap every day. There's like all these other components yeah. that we just kind of like ignore as if that's not part of the picture. And the blue zones are really interesting. So one interesting fact, do you, do you know the one food that is universal to all of the different blue zones? Ooh. Oh, I'm going to try to guess here. The one food that is universal you have like to all. Okinawa, the- you have um, Seventh-day Adventists, although it, it doesn't super duper apply to the Seventh-day Adventists. You have uh, uh, areas in, in uh, Costa Rica. But there's one food that is more ubiquitous among all of these places than any other food. It's pork. No, I don't know. It's poor. <laughs> no way. Really? Yeah. So that's one thing. Then there's another thing. Some folks got in and really looked at the way that the data was collected around the blue zones. And I'll, I'll, I'll pull it up. But there's a wonderful, like the, every once in a while, the titles of scientific papers are really kind of pithy and, and they're like, there's some humor in it. And it, it's basically <laughs> yeah, the blue zones, places in which no birth records are kept and shoddy death records are maintained and overall short life expectancy is the the expectation. Basically, the paper makes the case that this was all fraud. And, and what they, oh, they found is that it, so these are like in the areas of Costa Rica, the average lifespan is very short except in these people who are claiming that that they are exceptionally long-lived. And what ends up happening, whether it was in Costa Rica or some of these other places, an uncle would die, then like a nephew would take on his his name, and now he was Uncle Eduardo oh. or, or whatever. And so it was basically Got this it. huge fraud going on with this stuff. Uh. And it's, so they're, they're not particularly long-lived. Like when you really get in and, and look at these different places, it's, they had super poor birth records. They had super poor death records. There was actually no real data. So much of this stuff was like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's 106. And it's like, oh, okay, prove it. Well, we don't have any records of it. So so that stuff was kind of So shy. we shouldn't eat pork. That's the lesson. Don't yeah. eat pork. Or it's maybe you do f- eat pork. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. But they, so this is one of the great ones. People will go on and on and on about Seventh-day Adventists, you know, in the United States, because they do have an on average longer lifespan than the rest of yeah. the U.S. population. Well, the U.S. population relative to other westernized countries has one of the lowest average lifespans because we Mm -hmm. eat horribly and we have, you know, poor, poor lifestyle factors and whatnot. But what is never mentioned is that Mormons live just as long as Seventh-day Adventists, but yet they eat a mixed diet. But they also have strong religious convictions. They have great community. They generally do have a health-oriented lifestyle, like Yes. You go to Mormon communities, they work out like some of the greatest like like enclaves of CrossFit are within Mormon communities. Like they go they wild drink with stuff. Either. Yeah, they, right? no they drink relatively little. Like uh, there's a little bit of drinking Seventh-day Adventist populations, a little bit in Mormons, but they don't drink. They don't smoke. They tend to exercise, uh, you know, and they have strong cultural values. But nobody mentions like somehow the Mormons just get like there are all these great papers is like, what about the Mormons? The Mormons eat a mixed diet. They eat plenty of meat and and, and they yeah. live just as long as the uh, Seventh-day Adventists do. Yeah. Well, and again, it goes for me. It's just like it's not just the diet. Right. It, it 
it's all of that other stuff. Like if you eat it, you can have a really great diet, like really dial that in. But if you're stressed about it over the time, all the time, if you're just worried about everything you put in your body and you're isolated and you have no community, like those are all really contributing factors to your health as well. It's not just the calories and the type of calories and macro and micronutrients, right? Like so much of it is your mindset every day and your interaction with other people and all of that, you know? Yeah. Um, I you just know, think it gets so we get so siloed in our thinking that way. P- Peter Atia, I don't have his book right here in easy reach, but he just had his his book Outlive that that released, yep. and it, it's kind of a longevity orientation. He made a really interesting point, which was that there's no food, any food that has any strong signal one way or the other, either for health or for disease, as an individual item. You know, sugar, mm-hmm. wheat, meat, you, you know, what uh, uh, the bugaboo of, of all the different dietary camps. Whereas when you look at sleep, the signal is so profound. Like uh, it, people will die within 11 days of, of over sleep deprivation. Um, exercise, like it, the, uh, the protective benefits of modest amounts of it. And I mean, this is just like getting off the couch and going for a walk more days than not. It's stunning what that does as far as reducing morbidity and mortality. And this isn't even getting into like, oh, I'm going to try to optimize like my my VO2 response and my my uh, muscle mass for my my age matched, you know, cohort. Like when you do things like that, you look like a different species like you and I being, you know, I'm 51. You're you're late 40s. Right. So it, 47, it, you're 47. Yep. We're like a different species compared to the rest of our age cohort because we're in half decent shape. <laughs> I mean, it's literally like there's a speciation event there. And yeah. and it's just mainly like, yeah, diet's a factor. Like I definitely need to lean into my diet more because of these health issues. But there is kind of a reality that the fact I sleep, the fact I move almost every day in some sort of a, a dedicated, thoughtful way. I have wonderful community, really supportive community. God damn, like that. I, I've got the deck stacked in my favor coming and going totally. w- when I've got yep. all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The sleep thing is, um, I'm actually reading Why We Sleep, Matt. Uh, I think it's Matthew Walker's yeah. book. Um, it's one of those books that's, it was sort of like, did you listen to uh, Andrew Huberman did this uh, podcast where he talks about alcohol, like what it really yeah. does to you? Yeah. And it was yeah. just the most depressing thing. Cause it's, it's like, it's just terrible for you. Like there's no upside, you know? Um, and I'm somebody who I, I like red wine, a glass of wine. Yeah. It's not like I drink yeah. it every night, but I, de- I definitely like that. And I actually think my personal opinion here is I think it can be healthy when done infrequently and especially in communal settings when right. it's like you're going, you have people over for dinner and it's part of Again, I looked at sort of those blue zone people like they do that a lot. Actually, right. it's like they sit down for dinner with people and it's like a conversation for two hours and we're going to share some wine. We're not getting blasted, but um, I think it can be healthy. And I even look, I take the example of my mother who my entire adult life and maybe even beyond, she has had a glass of wine every night, like every night she has. But she has one, right. one glass of white wine. She goes to bed at nine o'clock. She sleeps eight hours at least a night. And she's such a non-stressed person. She's just like nothing gets her rattled and she's just kicking it, right? She's in, she's getting into her 
uh, mid to late seventies at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's so much of, you know, you know what I mean? Like that can be a part of a, I think, I think a part of a healthy lifestyle if it's not abused and, and all of those other things are really dialed up, right. In terms of the way you, right. you live your life. But anyway, the, I think the point I was getting to with that was, um, some of these things, when it, this is part of this, like it can stress you out, right? Like you dive into something like that. You listen to Huberman's thing on alcohol and you're just like, oh my God, this is like, if I have one drink, I'm going to die. Right? Right, <laughs> like it's just, right. it's horrible. And then you read Matthew Walker's book about sleep and it's like, oh my God, the amount of, amount of damage I've done to myself with bad sleep, with sleeping after drinking, you know, all of that, uh, bad circadian rhythm working at night, like you name it. It's just so detrimental. And and the hard part for me is always like being like, it's okay. Like just work with what you got now, right? right? Like right. just try to adjust your, you can't do anything about that. But um, but yeah, sleep is one that I I take a lot more seriously now. Like I, I even, I don't do as much like get up at the crack of dawn. Like if I go to bed early, that's fine. And I do do some of that. But there's many days a week where I'm just, I sleep till I wake up yep. and and I make sure that it's about, and it is for me. I, I don't know if it's it's probably slightly different for different people, just like diet and exercise and all these other things. For me, it is about eight hours. Like if I go to bed at 10 o'clock, I'll wake up about 6 a.m. You yep. know? Yep. Um, and the more I've leaned into that, that actually there's nights now where I actually, I mean, it's, it sounds like this shouldn't be abnormal. I actually sleep the whole night. Like I'll right. sleep seven, eight hours in a row and wake up and so, yeah, I mean, you mentioned, I saw something on social media you put out about that, like, where it was like, you're basically saying, I wonder if I had, instead of focused so much on diet, I had really focused on sleep right. as the sort of primary thing. And, yeah, because uh, I've always talked about a sleep about a lot, but it, it's, um, diet by its nature just creates a adversarial situation. Whereas if I was like the sleep guy and somebody's having sleep issues, and we put a continuous glucose monitor on them and they were getting hypoglycemic events in the middle of the night. I'm like, let's reduce your overall carbohydrate load and let's look at some immunogenic foods. Then we backed into good nutrition as a proxy for making better sleep. Then I, I just wonder if like the there would have been more success, more reach, less less of those fights, you know, because I wasn't directly like the food guy, but I was the sleep guy that just used food as a means to to get people better, better sleep yeah. and optimized health. Yeah. 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 Um, so coming up on time here, but sort of last thing that I wanted to go over here, if we've got a couple of minutes. Yeah. And, and this is really around your book, Sacred Cow, because I think um, it, it's a great book. I highly recommend it along with your other books. But it speaks to something that I think is really important. This goes into kind of my like, (laughs) let's not be stupid about this. And that is there's a lot of talk about factory farming, meat, and its effect on climate change, right? There's sort of talks about the health things with with meat and vegan and versus carnivore and all of that. And then sort of ethical treatment Mm -hmm. of animals too. And what your book does, I think a great job of is break, is say, we're talking about three separate things here. This isn't one argument, right? So we've got kind of like ethical treatment of animals, which I think we should all be concerned about. Of mm-hmm. like, look, we don't want to be cruel. Like, that, let's, right? That's a concern we need to think about. There's sort of like climate change and like, okay, what's really going on there? And let's like dig into some of the claims about factory farming and, and anything else that might be out there about cow farts and stuff like that. Right, right. And then the health stuff, like, is this, is this diet healthy? 
And to me, that's the conflation of those things is part of the problem, right? And I saw this, I actually saw this, the best example was when Biden was running for president, he was doing like a town hall and somebody stood up and said, hey, given what we know about how um, meat processing uh, affects climate change, would you change the dietary recommendations for Americans? And I thought, that's, those are two different things. Like, right. If, if we figure, if we figured out that, that meat was like part of a great diet and the best part of the diet, well then if, if the way we produce that is, is truly affecting the climate, well then we need to figure out how to produce it in a better way, not change the dietary recommendations. Right. Because, like if that's healthy for people, it's like, okay, that's really healthy. We need to figure out how it's, you know what I'm saying? Like it yeah. was ju- I was, I couldn't believe it just seemed like a real gross obtuseness on the, on those items, not being able to separate those arguments. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, so the, the book that we turned in is almost 300 pages long. And like you said, it covers the ethical, environmental and uh, health considerations of a meat inclusive foos, food system. Mm-hmm. When we turned in the rough draft, it was 600 pages long it, and we had Oof. to whittle it, <laughs> whittle it down by yeah, 50%. Yeah, that's a tough sell you know? on people, man. It, yeah, it's a, that, <laughs> that's, a, that's a big lift. The 300 pages was was a lot as it, as it was, but, you know, like this, this, environmental part, like there have been claims made at very high levels, like World Economic Forum levels, that 78% of greenhouse gas emissions are caused by the the animal product sector, which is patently false. It's less than 2%. And that 2%, whenever we are talking about a living system, whether it's termites or, or clams or what have you, it's part of what's called a biogenic system. Like there's carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that gets brought into a plant. That plant gets consumed by an animal. Some of that plant may get converted into methane as part of the cellulosic fermentation and it gets put out into the environment. Methane is a greenhouse gas it, and it's, uh, it's many multiples, but it retains more, more heat in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide does. But methane only has a half-life of about 10 years. When it's out in the environment, ultraviolet radiation hits it. It cleaves it into carbon dioxide and water, and then it's back into a cycle. So the, the, the carbon that is part of methane, that's part of carbon dioxide, that is part of a living system, it just cycles. And thank God it does, because otherwise life on, on the planet would grind down to a halt. So it's a tiny contribution to the whole of like greenhouse gas emissions and it's a cyclic contribution. So it's almost like this part, however many animals you have living, dying, you know, decomposing, bel- belching, doing their thing. It's just happening in the background. And it, 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 it's not really changing the net effect of carbon in the environment. What really changes that is tailpipe emissions from cars and planes and, and all that type of stuff. And the, what we had to do or what I felt like we needed to do was really illustrate the true magnitudes of of what was going on here that it uh, the contribution from the animal sector is literally a rounding error compared to con- uh, transportation mm-hmm. like it, it it's like you could contribute or not contribute it doesn't even matter to the to the total amount that, that happens from from transportation but yet really important entities are suggesting that it is the contributor and if yeah. you say that it's the contributor, then we're going to focus on it as the problem 
And if it's not the problem, and that's where we put all of our resources, we are screwed. Like, yeah. it, it, it's, I, I, it makes me think of like the, uh, the drunk driving uh, machines where, where like it'll, it'll emulate your drunk because it'll, it'll like put a time lag into you turning and braking oh, okay. and all that type okay. of stuff. Okay. We're operating with, with just shit information. And this is a, a you know, a, what, what did uh, Powell say right before the 2008 economic implosion? We have offloaded risk because we've financialized all of our debt and we are safe. And then the whole thing blew up because economies are way too complex for people to, <laughs> to, to manage in that process. And now we effectively have the same thing, but kind of on the other side, people suggesting that we with pinpoint accuracy can, can know what, uh, you know, the total climactic, uh, you know, endpoints are going to be a hundred years from now when the, the climate is so much more complex than what, what we can really wrap our heads around. That's not to say we shouldn't try, but just if, if it's that complex and it's that difficult and there's so many parts in it and we're focusing on literally the one thing that might actually be of service to us, because the point that we make in the, in the book, and this has been well-documented well-managed grazing animals, whether it's reindeer or cattle or horses or what have you, are a net carbon sink. They put more carbon back in the ground than what they release mm -hmm. into the environment, even as part of that, that uh, uh, carbon cycle. So we're not focusing on the real problem and we're vilifying something that might actually be a solution. And so yep. I just, the, the, the danger to that to me is I, it's difficult to really properly state, you, you know, how dramatically impactful that could be. And, and it's yeah. a, it's a big yeah. topic to unpack. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think you spoke to part of the problem of everything we do these days is we want to find the problem. We love to just, we got to find the thing, the, the one thing that we can vilify and say, there it is. We just get rid of that. It'll all be okay. And it's like, it's just right. like anything. It's like our bodies. It's like our mental health. It, it, there's no uh, there's no other uh or the there. It's like a multifaceted, complex, layered thing, right? That you have to peel back piece by piece. And we just can't afford to be so kind of simplistic in our thinking, I think, about any of these things. Yeah, we, um, we really can't. So. If you take any of this stuff seriously, and like I'm not a climate change denialist, it absolutely is a real thing. It definitely needs to be addressed. But if we're focusing on literally the thing that might be a solution and is not the primary driver, how are we going to fix that? And, yeah. and people well, may be like, I don't know. This sounds kind of, kind of, you, you know, dubious. But it, it, all I would suggest is like, if it's that big of a deal, then really make sure that I'm wrong. Get in and read the book, watch the film, read all the literature that we cite in there, and then come back with your own piece, whether it's a blog or a podcast or what have you, and detail all the places that Diana and I get that wrong because we, we are yeah, the, the sure. vanguard of, of suggesting this alternate view. Or maybe we actually have this right and we need to, at, at a local and a global level, like tackle this stuff in a very different way. Yeah. I think the last thing I'll say, the cow farts thing always makes me laugh because this goes back to the, let's just think about sort of the obvious here. The obvious fact that like how many ruminants, meaning animals like cows and buffaloes and things, were like roaming the countryside before humans came along, right? I'm right. pretty sure it was a shit ton of them. And somehow 
climate change wasn't happening because of their farts, right? <laughs> like, and so it's it's like, man, I don't think that's probably the real thing going on there. I don't know. Right, I'm not a right. And, and if it really is, if climate change really is important, then we need to get that right, you know? Yes, Or maybe it's absolutely. not that important. Yeah, and then we can get uh, it wrong. <laughs> yeah. All right, Rob. Well, I know you got to go. I really appreciate it, man. Um, and I'm, I'm going to hold you to dinner at some point. We will. It's, it's in our... <laughs> we will make it happen. I promise. I promise. All right. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks so much, brother. Great seeing you as always. Uh, love your insight on this stuff. Um, it's great to talk to somebody who's a lot smarter on it than I am. So really appreciate it. I, I just have an area of expertise that's an inch wide and a mile deep. So thank you. Well, good. We need people like that. <laughs> thanks, bro. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Rare Sense podcast. Remember that RareSense content is not medical advice, nor does it represent the official position or opinions of any other organization or person. If you require diagnosis or treatment for a mental or physical issue or illness, please seek it from a licensed professional. Also, if you're enjoying RareSense content, there are many places where you can find it and help level up your mental health. You can subscribe to this podcast on any major streaming platform, and please leave a five-star review if you love it. You can subscribe to the RareSense Substack, which is where I publish all of my content. And you can find that at rarsense.substack.com. And that includes a monthly article released on the first of every month, a monthly book recommendation, Thing to Read, which is released on the 15th of every month, the podcast episodes, and weekly Mind Warrior training, which is released every Sunday. You can subscribe to the RareSense YouTube channel, you can take the Rare Sense Challenge, which is on my website at rarsense.com. You can connect with me on all major social media platforms at this Chris Irwin. And you can invite me to speak about mind fitness to your organization by filling out the contact form on the Rare Sense website. You can also support my work by purchasing Rare Sense gear, which is on the website as well. Thanks so much for your support.